All righty. Very good to be with you as always. If you need a handout, there's one on each side of the room on the very back row. Let me pray and ask God to help us tonight. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for your truth. We ask, Lord, that as we look at it again, help us with, uh, by your spirit to rightly understand what's being said and not only to understand it, but to actually do, be moved by it. Help us to increase in our affection of you and our obedience to you. Help us to rightly divide your word that we'd be faithful to you and to others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I was reflecting on and kind of being saddened by how the common, let's say American man or Western man, uh, understands his relationship to God, right? So let's brainstorm that a little bit. We're talking about non-Christians, but people who have some sort of general idea about who God is. How do they understand their relationship to God? What in their mind is their relationship with God like? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Right on. So they, they basically fashion a God uh, based on their own liking, based on their own understanding. And really, I mean, this is, this is a biblical concept about what unbelievers do in their natural state. Romans 1 describes it about how we exchange the truth about God for a lie and exchange, exchange what we know about him for worshiping created things. Now, in America, uh, which at least in, in the past had a very strong Christian influence, people had these general ideas about the true God of the Bible, but then just kind of filled in the gaps themselves. So you hear about people referring to God by names like the man upstairs or the big guy, right? So this is, this is their view of God, that kind of, they, they, they assume a certain closeness with him and that if they were to die and they were to face him, uh, should God allow them into heaven? What would they say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I've been a generally good person, right? So they, they, they assume a certain closeness with God, uh, a, a certain similarity to God that we have. One songwriter wrote, what if God was one of us? And people love that song. It was a great hit, right? But God is not one of us. He is not like us. He is holy, holy, holy. Another songwriter uh, said, tell me all your thoughts on God because I really want to meet her, right? Very clever, very clever. But he, so he, he wants to fashion God after what he thinks God should be like. And in that case, I guess he thinks God ought to be a feminine being. But the point is uh, that the issues that people typically have when they are thinking about God or rather thinking wrongly about God is that they fail to see what theologians call a creator-creature distinction. They fail to see the distance between God and man. So they can, in their minds, formulate the idea, what if God is one of us? But he's not. He's not. They also assume that God ought to be listening to them, that God ought to save them and allow them into heaven simply because of who they are and the good that they've done in this world. And what we're going to reflect on tonight is that we are so far from God, we are so distant from God that we could not save ourselves. And as a result of the fact that we couldn't save ourselves, God made a covenant to save mankind. That's the main idea that we're going to be looking at today. Mankind could not save itself, so God made a covenant to save mankind. And we're going to break this down into four different headings. The first one is this. There was no way that mankind could earn eternal life so God made a covenant with them. There is no way mankind can earn eternal life, so God made a covenant with them. Read that quote with me. 
right under number one. And if you need a handout, they're on the back rows of that side and that side. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. That's from chapter 7, paragraph 1 of the Second London Baptist Confession. Okay? So l- let me explain what they're saying, and then we'll look at the passages underneath to see if this is true. The idea is the distance between God and creature is massive. Okay? Now, when we're talking about distance, we're not talking about physical distance. God is everywhere present. God is even in this room. What this is talking about is God is relationally separated from God. We, we are so unlike him in this way. He is, the Bible describes him, holy, holy, holy. And holy just means set apart. But in the Hebrew, you couldn't just use underlines, italics, and exclamation points. So you would repeat it for emphasis. He is three times holy. Holy, holy, holy. Nothing and no one else is described in the Bible in that way. Because God is so set apart in that way. There is a great distance between God and creature. That although reasonable creatures, read human beings, we've been given reason, do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Now that's interesting. They could not have attained the reward of life by some voluntary... uh, uh, because of their distance between God and, and creature. We do owe him obedience, but we, they couldn't have attained the reward of life. Okay? So we think about Adam, right? Adam was implied in the promise, uh, implied in the covenant that God made with him. He was going to live forever if he didn't eat from the t- fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? It's implied later when the tree of life is cut off from them. If they didn't eat of that tree they shouldn't have eaten of and eaten of the tree of life instead, they would have lived forever. So in a sense, Adam could have earned eternal life simply by uh, obeying God's commandment to not eat of that tree. Okay? But here's the thing, is that that is an incredibly gracious reward for not eating from a, from a tree. Okay? So I'll give an example. I asked uh, brother, where's Cortland? Asked Brother Cortland today to go change a light bulb in one of the offices. Thank you, Brother, for doing that. Very deacony, right? Uh, so praise the Lord for your service. Now, what if I said, Cortland, if you change that light bulb, I'm going to get you a brand new car. And he said, Amen, Amen. Now, now I made that deal with him. So if he changed a light bulb, I should give him that car, right? But that is that is not a commensurate to the task. Everyone would be like, where can I change a light bulb, right? So Adam, in obeying God and not eating from the tree, to be given eternal life is still a gracious reward, okay? Now, if God did not make that, that, that uh, agreement with Adam, let's say that Adam did not sin against God. Would Adam have been worthy of eternal life had God not made that arrangement with him? What do you think? Caleb's, you like a slight shake of the head? Okay, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait because we're going to look at the passages to answer that question. But what the confession is suggesting here is that even though creatures owe obedience to God as creator, they could never have attained the reward of life unless by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by way of covenant. So in order for God to give Adam access to eternal life, God needed to reach down to Adam and tell him what to do, okay? So when we talk about covenants here, the, the, the confession says, by way of covenant, here's how we're going to define covenant because there are different ideas about what a covenant entails. But we're going to work off of the definition that a 17th century uh, Reformed Baptist theologian, Nehemiah Cox, he says, he observes that covenants are like this. A covenant in the Bible is essentially God's sovereign declaration of a relationship with his creature. Okay, so that's the first part. 
It's a, it's a sovereign declaration of a relationship with a creature, the benefits that the people will get in that relationship, and the means by which they can receive those benefits. So let me just say that again. Uh, God sovereignly declares his relationship with creatures. He tells them the benefits of that relationship and the means by which they can receive those benefits. Those are the components of a covenant according to Nehemiah Cox, which I think is, is a fair understanding of it. In other words, when God made a covenant with Adam, was Adam at the bargaining table helping to set the terms of this covenant? No, no. It was simply God who said, I am your God, and here is what you must not do, and implied in that, if you don't do it, then you're going to live forever, okay? So God had to reach down to do that. Now, is this true? Is it true that, that if Adam had obeyed apart from this covenant, would he, ha- would he not have deserved eternal life? Let's take a look at this. Luke 17, verse 10. Luke 17, verse 10. Jesus is instructing his disciples here. And he says to them in Luke 17:10, uh, let me read from verse 7 actually. Luke 17 verse 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. All right? So Jesus is teaching them from a picture of a master-servant relationship that they would have been very well aware of. This isn't speaking about God's disposition towards our obedience. He is pleased by our obedience, though he, he won't thank us for it, but he is pleased by our obedience. But they understand in this culture Masters and slaves. When slaves do their job, masters aren't like, hey, why don't you come sit down at the table? Or, or at least typically that's not the case. Instead, after the servant completes his duties, he tells him what more things to do, right? Uh, he doesn't thank the servant because he did what was commanded. And so you also, disciples of Jesus Christ, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, We have only done what was our duty. So, apply that back to Adam. Let's say God did not make this arrangement with him, did not make this covenant with him. He just created him, and just being a creature, Adam had the responsibility to obey God. Let's say he obeyed God perfectly. Would he deserve eternal life? Caleb's saying no. Why not, Caleb? Yeah, that's right. He, he did what he was supposed to do, right? And people don't, we don't get that. We're a very entitled society, right? So I see a lot of people mocking their companies because the companies thank them with a pizza party, right? You're just doing your job. As long as they're giving you your paycheck, you don't deserve anything beyond that. You agreed to that, right? So if they give you a pizza party, then that's grace. <laughs> you should be thankful that they give you a pizza party. They shouldn't be giving you extra vacation days or a, or a 200% raise just because you simply did your job, right? So if, if God did not make this arrangement with Adam, that was essentially, if you obey me and do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then I will allow you to eat from the tree of life and you will live forever. That's God's grace. That's God's condescension, which is a good word in theology. He's not being condescending. He is stooping down to his creatures and making an arrangement with him, okay? Job 35, let's take a look at something else here. Job 35, verses seven through eight. Now here, one of Job's friends is responding to Job. And you might actually find it strange that the authors of the confession would, uh, would quote Job's friends why would that be strange? Why might you find it strange that the authors of the confession cite Job's friends as evidence of the positions that they're taking? Why would that be weird? Or maybe weird. Yeah, yeah. So the, the friends say a lot of wrong things, and God 
uh, except for Elihu, which he actually does not punish. Uh, he punishes Job's friends because they gave, essentially, they, they, they slandered Job to his face, right? Because they assumed Job was sinning and that's why he was suffering. Elihu, whom we're quoting, is not somebody who was punished in the end. And yet we do see some fault in what he's saying because what he's saying is true, but it completely discounts Job's particular situation. Job was not suffering because he was sinning. Job was suffering because uh, God gave Satan permission to, to basically be used to test Job, okay? So one thing that we need to know about Job's friends is that even though they were wrong in the situation, a lot of what they say is true, okay? And it's inspired scripture, and so we'll analyze what Elihu says here in Job 35, verses 7 through 8. He says this to Job, If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. So if you are righteous, Job and church family, if you do good, if you do righteous things, what do you give to him? Does God benefit from the good that you do? Jenna is shaking her head. No, no. God is sufficient. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need anything that we do, okay? That's the idea that's being said here. The other thing too, what does he receive from your hand? What do we give to God that he didn't give to us in the first place? Nothing. Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself. So even the sins that you do, they only just affect maybe you and other people around you, but they don't hurt God at all. And your righteousness, a son of man. The good deeds that we do, like Cortland changing a light bulb, that benefits us. But God doesn't need light bulbs changed. He's fine. That's the idea that's being said here. And so because of this, he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe Job a single thing. He doesn't owe us anything. So tying this back to our concept, we couldn't earn eternal life even if we could live perfect lives. Because in the end, let's say you and I lived a perfect life, all we've really done is what we were supposed to do. That doesn't deserve a reward. That simply does, I mean, that simply not deserves wrath, but it doesn't deserve a reward, okay? So the idea here is that God graciously enters into relationships with his people. He graciously bestows blessing onto them and gives them the means by which they can receive it. So even though uh, the covenant that was made with Adam was, was a covenant of works, meaning Adam needed to obey in order to earn the blessing, it was still gracious that God provided the way to begin with. He didn't need to do that. Didn't need to do that. He could have simply created and backed off. What is that wrong worldview called? God created and just watches. Deism, right? God didn't do that. He created, he said it was very good, and then he spoke to Adam and Eve and made a covenant with Adam. Praise be to God. So not only is God gracious to us in the fact that he sent us a savior, God is gracious to us in the fact that he speaks to us at all. He doesn't need to speak with us at all. And so his doing that, and not just speaking to us, but entering into a relationship with us is incredibly gracious. So that, that to begin with, is what, what makes it so that we can't earn eternal life on our own. The distance between us and God and the fact that we owe him our obedience and it doesn't deserve eternal life. But there's something that else that made it even more complicated. And that's what number two is talking about. Man put himself under the curse of the law, so God made a covenant of grace. Man put himself under the curse of the law, so God made a covenant of grace. Read that quote with me. Moreover, Man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. So that word moreover kind of, kind of means like, but wait, there's more. So, so as if the distance between creature and creator weren't enough to traverse, there was something else that happened that made it even further. And that is that man brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. We talked about that in the previous chapter of the confession and looked at the passages that are related to that. But the idea is that uh, when Adam sinned, he brought himself under the curse of breaking the law, which what was the punishment that was due to Adam because he sinned? 
death. On that day, you will surely die. Now, some people, well, actually, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me hold that thought for a second. So he puts himself under the curse of the law, and all of his progeny are born under the curse of the law. We have sinned in Adam, but it's not only responsible because of Adam's sin, but we ourselves sin as quickly as we can. That's our nature. We're born with sinful natures, and as soon as we possibly can, we do our own sins as well. Because of this, or rather in this situation, it pleased the Lord, this, the quote says, to make a covenant of grace. Right? So the first point was simply talking about God making a covenant with Adam just to have a relationship with man. But because of the fall, he established a covenant of grace. We'll unpack what that means in just a moment. But let's take a look at this. Genesis 2.17 Genesis 2.17. This is more talking about man bringing himself under the curse of the law. But here is what the instructions are to Adam when he's giving him the, a covenant that he's making to him. And by the way, people will say that the passage doesn't say covenant, therefore we shouldn't call it a covenant. But just because it is not there named a covenant doesn't mean that that's not what's going on here, right? So for example, um, in the narrative, in I think it's First or Second Samuel, where God makes a promise to David, it doesn't say covenant, but elsewhere in the Bible it calls it a covenant. Okay, so again, the the working definition we're doing with covenant is God unilaterally or sovereignly making a or declaring a relationship with His creature, telling them what are the benefits of that relationship, and what are the means by which. He can, he can receive those blessings. So here, here is where we're talking about. Genesis 2.17, leading up from verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God puts trees in the garden. They can eat of any tree, but this one tree called the knowledge of good and evil, they were not supposed to eat. There's different ideas of, uh, of what that tree is and why it would have been so bad for them to have knowledge of good and evil. And I, I think that the best explanation is that it was an experiential knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Like, they would have known what to do because it was written on their heart. They would have known what not to do because of what was written on their heart and because God commanded them exactly what to do. But as soon as they ate, they felt shame. They recognized their nakedness. They hid. So it was an experiential knowledge of good and evil that they were not to have. It's because they, they didn't have the moral perfection of God to be able to handle that knowledge. All right? So he tells them not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Implied in that is the reverse. What if they don't eat of it? What will happen? They will not die, right? <laughs> They're going to live forever. They're going to have eternal life. They'll be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, some will, uh, will argue here that, that God did not fulfill this curse because what happened when they ate? Yeah, they didn't immediately die. So they would say that either uh, God was, uh, did not fulfill it uh, or that he was like gracious and merciful. But I, I think what we can see here is that on that day, they surely spiritually died. And, and everyone who was born uh, from Adam is born spiritually dead. So they definitely died in that way. And they also definitely started dying in that day as well. Their bodies started to decay, even though it would take some 900 years for them to actually physically pass away. But they started to physically die. Death entered the world through that man's sin, right? So again, he brought himself under the curse of the law. And from that, it, was, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And by the way, that's great language there from the confession. It pleased the Lord. God was not duty-bound to make a covenant of grace with them. He could have just said, well, you broke the covenant. I'm starting over. Or I'm just not doing this anymore, right? But instead, he makes a covenant with them the way that this covenant is revealed is right in Genesis 3, when God curses the serpent. 
In the curse that God gives to the serpent that tempted Eve, he promises that the seed of the woman, a descendant from Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. That is where the covenant of grace is first revealed. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so Cedric's asking, like, um, would it be f- fair to say that God didn't respond with the covenant of grace, but that that was the plan all along? Yes, certainly that was the case, right? From God's eternal decree, God's plan was always to show grace to his people. However, grace wasn't necessary until they fell, right? Until they sinned. And so there was no need to reveal the, the covenant of grace until they fell. Good question. Good question. All right. Galatians 3.10, let's, let's keep going. Galatians 3.10. The argument that Paul is making here is that you, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot, you cannot be righteous by obeying the law. And in this argument, he says in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So everyone who relies on works of the law are under a curse. In other words, if you rely on obeying God's law in order to be right with God, in order to be given eternal life, you're under a curse. Why is that the case? Why are you under a curse if you rely on works of the law? Read ahead a little bit. He'll tell you. Yeah, the law, the law, to Cedric's point, was never meant to lead you to eternal life. It showed you your need of salvation. It showed you your need of a savior. But the law, actually Romans will say, could not do it. It could not do it, okay? Right on. Here's the reason why. If you rely on obeying God in order to be right with him, you're under a curse. He says it, here's why. For it is written, then he quotes Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if I obey 99.99% of the time, but disobey 0.01% of the time, am I cursed? Yeah, because I haven't done all of the things of the book written in the book of the law. It, just one sin is enough to put me in enmity with God. And by the way, no one is anywhere close to 99.99. Actually, before Christ, because you weren't doing it for God or in faith, you were actually at 0%, right? And by the way, if you, talk to a, if you point this out to a Roman Catholic, that if you rely on works of the law, you're under a curse, what they'll say is, or at least what one has said to me, is that works of the law is referring to um, this, the ceremonial law, like circumcision. And to be fair, that is the main argument that Paul is making here, is that you don't need to obey the ceremonial law in order to be a Christian. But the issue with that, especially in this verse, is that what he's quoting from Deuteronomy is not only talking about the ceremonial law. It's talking about the, the law of Moses. It's talking about the entire law, which would include the moral law. And so if you are relying on any works of the law, you're under a curse. And it's because you need to obey the whole thing. If you have any chance of being righteous at all, you need to obey the whole thing. And because you can't do that, because no one but Christ has done it, anyone who relies on it is under a curse. Let's take a look at one more on this. Romans 3, verses 20 through 21. 
Romans 3, 20 through 21. After just talking about how everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short, uh, the, the fact that everyone has sinned shows that everyone is accountable to God. We read in verse, verses 20 through 21. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And by the way, here's another passage you can point to that clearly show that works of the law is not talking about the ceremonial law. At least in the context of Romans 3, the ceremonial law isn't talked about. It's only talking about how sinful people are and nobody seeks for God, right? And so he says, by works of the law, by, in other words, by obeying the law, no human being is going to be justified in his sight. There is nobody who, by obeying God's law, God is going to look at and say, that's a righteous person who deserves to be in my presence forever. There's nobody who will be justified that way. And the reason why is it's because what Cedric just said, it's through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's the fact that the law is there, either on tablets of stone externally or just written in our hearts as image bearers of God that reveal to us that we have sinned. It's evidence that we have sinned. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the righteousness of God here is talking about the righteousness that comes from God. It has been revealed. The, right, the, the means that God provides for people in order to be righteous, it has been manifested and it has nothing to do with the law. There, there is no one who is going to be righteous before God because of anything to do with the law. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is righteous. And it's not because they've obeyed God's law. Now, if you have been made righteous, you will obey God's law. That's something else we'll talk about in a little bit. But just understand that you are not righteous before God at all because of anything that you did. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So if you read the law and the prophets, is basically just a way of saying the Old Testament, the law uh, talking about the, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets just generally talking about the rest of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament constantly points forward to this righteousness of God that would come apart from the law. The law itself shows what Cedric said, our need for salvation. And then beyond that, there is uh, what we'll talk about next week, how the Old Testament progressively reveals how God is going to make his people righteous. And it, and it talks about in, in shadows how Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And how Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? So the law and the prophets point forward to this. But in the end, we know that we are righteous not because of obeying the law. So what we're talking about with that, in God making people righteous apart from obeying the law, is essentially what we're saying when we're talking about the covenant of grace. It is the agreement that God has made with his people that I will be your God and you will be my people. The benefits bestowed in this covenant are eternal life and salvation and the means by which you enter into this covenant and receive those benefits is not works. It's not works. And praise be to God for that because there's no way that we could have earned eternal life for two reasons, because we are so distant from God to begin with and also because we were under the curse of the law with our sinfulness. So how do we enter into this covenant of grace? Number three, under this covenant, people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Under this covenant, people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And just for good measure, let's add that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Look at this quote here again. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, and here's our next statement, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Right? So, 
In this covenant of grace, he freely offers the benefits, life and salvation. And then he gives the means by which they can receive those benefits by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Let's look, we're in Romans already. Let's just turn east a few pages. Romans 8, verse 3. Romans 8, verse 3. After Paul has just kind of talked about how in how the struggle of the Christian is that we, 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 we don't want to sin, but we do, and all the righteousness we want to do, we don't do, he comforts us by saying, there is therefore now condem- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, you've received the Holy Spirit and therefore you now walk according to his ways and you have been set free in Christ from following your flesh in the law of sin and death. And then he says this in verse three. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So the reason why, if you're a believer, you've been set free from the law of sin and death. You're free from your old self, even though you continue to struggle against your old self. It's because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not accomplish? Hmm? Salvation. Salvation. Righteousness. The law could not make us righteous. The law could not give us salvation. The law could not make us justified in the sight of God. And it, the reason why it was it was weakened by the flesh. Now, the law itself is perfect. We can love the law. We can look back and say, it is beautiful. But it's weakened not because of the law. It's weakened by us. It's weakened by the flesh. The reason why it can't make us righteous is not because of it. It's because of us. It's weakened by the flesh. Yeah, sure. So the law itself is great. The law is essentially an expression of God's holiness and his perfection. But the reason why he couldn't get us to heaven is because of our sinfulness. It tells us what we must be, and we don't do that. We actually do the opposite of it. Does that make sense? And so in that sense, the law is weakened by the flesh. So it couldn't do it. It couldn't save us. It couldn't make us righteous. And what he did in order to do that is by sending his own son, He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning the incarnation. He took on a human body, which is what we'll be celebrating essentially in December. It's not just Jesus' birthday, okay? It is this beautiful incarnation of the Son of God that he would appear in the likeness of sinful flesh. He himself did not have sinful flesh, but he came as truly human, truly fully man and fully God at the same time. And he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He he sent his son to deal with the problem of sin, which is that it condemned all of us to death into eternal condemnation. So he sent his son to take care of that problem. And in, in, in the process of doing so, or rather the way that he did it was that he condemned sin. The father condemned sin in the flesh. So we see this great reversal, right? It's because of our flesh that the law was weakened. So the way that God resolved it was by punishing or rather condemning sin in the flesh, meaning that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took our sins on himself. And God judged, placed his judgment on his son because of our sin or for our sin. And in that way, he accomplished what the law could not do. That is the means by which we are allowed to enter into this covenant. It is through the work of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. Let's look at John 3.16. John 3.16. John's, or rather, the Lord says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When that phrase, God so loved the world, sometimes we can misunderstand that to mean that God loved the world so much. uh, And and he did love the world 
much, right? But, but what is being said here instead is he loved the world in this way. And actually, that expresses it even more. Here is how God expresses his love for the world or humanity, that he gave his only son. What is a greater expression than that? To give your only son. That, for this purpose, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in his son, should not perish, but have eternal life. We can look at all of Scripture and and recognize that this perishing is not an annihilation, but it's an eternal condemnation for sin. It is a death that lasts forever. It's a conscious state of torment. But those who believe in the Son will not perish. They'll have eternal life. They'll be given eternal life. And so we see here again the means by which the people that God is making a covenant with receive the benefits of the covenant. It is through Jesus Christ and is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in him. That's the way that God has set up and arranged this covenant. Right? So under this covenant, people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And also equally beautifully, number four, under this covenant, God gives his people the Holy Spirit to save them. God gives his people the Holy Spirit to save them. So not only does he give his only son, but he also gives his spirit to save us. Read the quote again, and then we'll focus on the italicized part. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Here it is and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So part of this covenant of grace that is is progressively revealed in the Old Testament is that God is actually going to give his own spirit to his people, to the the people that he's going to save. And, And in giving them his Holy Spirit, he makes those people willing and able to believe. Let's take a look at these concept at these verses. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. So this is the context of how God is going to restore and redeem his people. And here's what he says. And I will give you a new heart, And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's what God would do for his people. Here is how he would establish this new covenant with them or rather give them the means by which they could receive the benefits of the covenant. He would give them a new heart. He would put a new spirit within them. This is essentially saying the same thing. He's going to, he's going to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Restore, no. Essentially, what's up? Redeem, make new is the word. I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but he's going to make new the inner being of somebody. He's not just going to tweak it a little bit. He's going to completely make it new. He's going to regenerate a person by giving them a new heart and giving them a new spirit, right? The spirit, again, is just talking about the inner being, and that's essentially what the heart is saying as well. I'm going to give him a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Yes, Pastor Corey? Renovate? I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. So everyone, all of us, before we were saved, we had a heart of stone. We were completely disposed against God. We were immovable because our hearts were completely solid stone. And what God does is a heart transplant. He takes out a heart of stone and gives you a beating heart instead. He gives you a heart of flesh, one that is moldable and malleable and affectable. Okay? So he gives you that. And not just that. But he also, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. 
So your, your own spirit will be regenerated and given new life. But beyond that, he's going to put his Holy Spirit within you. This is an incredible gift of the new covenant. The Old Testament people of Israel did not walk around with the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. We are given that as part of this blessing of the new covenant. Did you have your hand raised, brother? An omnipresent cardiologist. That's great. That's right. Amen. Uh, so we get a heart transplant, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. And the result of his giving us his Holy Spirit is that he, verse 27, will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the problem with the old covenant people is that they so often would harden their hearts against him and not obey God's law. They would turn away from God's law uh, and they would go to idols and worship those idols instead. So God solves this sin problem in two ways. He gives his only son for forgiveness, but if he just left us to our own devices, then we would just still be trapped in sin. So instead, he gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, and the Holy Spirit causes, it says, causes us to walk in his statutes and makes us careful to obey his rules. He causes that. Now, do we have, do we have participation in that? Of course. That's why we can't say, well, I didn't obey because God didn't cause me to obey. That's not how we think about this. We must obey. We must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must obey the Lord when he says, just as I am holy, you be holy in all that your conduct, right? But, so we work hard at it. We kill the flesh. But when we look back, we're going to say, man, that was all God. Anytime that I obey, all credit goes to him. It's because he is the one who is causing me to do that. Philippians describes it this way. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you want to obey God, that's the Holy Spirit. If you obey God, that's the Holy Spirit. Praise God for this gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why I said just as beautiful as giving us his son, he gave us his spirit, right? What about John 6 verses 44 through 45? John 6, verses 44 through 45. So Jesus has just fed the 5,000, which the crowd loved. And then Jesus explained the spiritual implications of it, which they did not love, right? They wanted Jesus a miracle worker. They wanted Jesus a welfare officer, but they didn't want Jesus the Savior. So what they started to do in verse 41 is that they started to grumble about him because Jesus said that he's the bread that came down from heaven. And then, despite the fact that he just miraculously fed 5,000 people, they start to say, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So, evidence that something like a miracle of feeding 5,000 people from a few, loaves of, a few loaves and some fish is not going to change people's hearts. That's evidence right there. And Jesus answers them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Right. So first of all, we see here this moral inability that we've been talking about. Jesus says, no one can come to me. On their own, nobody can come to me unless, so God has to do something, unless the father who sent me draws him. Now the word actually translated draws here literally means drags. Like if you pull up the, uh, at least on Strong's, that's the only definition given for this word is drags, either literally or figuratively. So unless the father drags him, but draws is okay. Uh, and the reason I say that is because drag implies that it is against your will, right? But we really, the way that God saves us is by changing our hearts to want to believe in Jesus. There's no one going to heaven that was like, I didn't want to be here, right? No one, that's not going to be the case, right? Everyone who goes to be with the Lord wanted to that to begin with, okay? So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you believe in Jesus Christ, 
it is because God the Father drew you to his son. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, it's because the Father did not draw you to the son. Now, some will read this verse and they'll say that, yes, it does say that, but God draws everyone. Uh, And they'll point to John 12, where Jesus says that if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. But if we're just, what defines a word is the context around this, right? Like Jesus didn't just randomly say a doctrinal statement. He's saying this in the context of what's going on around him. And what's going on around him is people just witnessed a miracle of Jesus and then he says something they don't like and they're like, I don't think this guy's it, right? And then he says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So what he's implying is you're not coming to me because my father has not drawn you which is already evidence enough that God does not draw everybody because he was not drawing them. You might say, well, he started drawing them after Jesus rose from the dead, but that, that can't be true because there were people who were truly following him as well. And if it's true that no one can come to Jesus unless the father who sent him draws him, then God drew those people to his son. And the benefit of those who come to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. So anyone whom the Father draws and comes to the Savior, Jesus' promise is that when I return, I'm going to raise them up from the dead. Praise be to God. And then he goes on to, to quote the prophets in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he quotes them saying, and they will all be taught by God. Again, this is why the, the new covenant is so much better than the old. So not, not only is the covenant community, the church, taught by, let, let's say, a man talking to you about the Bible, okay? It's not just Ed teaching you, but if you're a believer, you are taught by God himself. You're taught by God himself. Now, this isn't talking about God giving you messages apart from Scripture. What this is talking about is that when you hear the word, you receive it because of the Holy Spirit in you. And because of that, you are directly being taught by God himself. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that lovely? That's why when you hear the word, it convicts you. It encourages you. It emboldens you. It's because I am not ultimately doing the teaching here. It is God the Spirit of God preaching through me and the Spirit of God in you receiving the word with eagerness. Thanks be to God. All right? Did I hit everything in that verse? Oh, everyone who... So Jesus comments on this verse. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what that implies is people who have not heard and learned from the Father don't come to him. So... This is specifically talking about the moment that you came to Jesus Christ. Why is it, did this cut out? I'm sorry. Why is it that you can preach the room, uh, gospel, the gospel to a room of people and a few people come to Jesus and many don't? It's because for the few who came to Jesus, God taught them directly. The Spirit of God moved on them so that they actually believed what was being said. That's why Paul, when he goes into the city of Corinth, which is hostile to the gospel, they they thought it ridiculous that their Messiah would have been someone who was crucified, who experienced the the lowest form of capital punishment that Rome could terrorize people with, okay? So your Messiah was crucified? Paul goes in knowing this, and he simply preaches a simple, foolish gospel of Christ and him crucified, and people just believe it. They just believe this weird message coming from Paul. And the reason they do that is because it was God himself who taught them in that moment. How does God do that? I I think that all, if not, I think most, if not all of us would say, in my moment of conversion, I didn't hear an audible voice. But it was in that moment that the Spirit of God made us alive to receive the word and believe it. So thanks be to God, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at one more quickly. Psalm 110, verse 3. 
Psalm 110, verse 3. I always underestimate how long it would take to talk through these things, but we're going to get done in time, Lord willing. In Psalm 110, verse 3, in a clearly, clearly messianic psalm, a psalm talking about the Messiah, uh, he says in verse 3, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Okay? So when, when the psalmist says of the Messiah, your people will offer themselves freely, it's in the context of what he's just said. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the idea here is going to the hostile nation and God's people there just freely surrendering to him. Now, we've seen that in some conflicts, right? When, when, when the stronger nation comes in and people, they don't even put up a fight. They just immediately surrender to that other nation, right? That's the idea here. The Messiah would go in in the midst of his enemies and his people would offer themselves freely on the day of your power or when he accomplished his mission as Messiah. In holy garments, which is probably implying that it's not just that they're going to surrender as, as uh, prisoners. They're going to surrender to fight for the other side. They're, they're putting on holy garments as in soldiers' garments to go with him in the midst of his enemies. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth is going to be yours. Uh, kind of a strange statement, but I think the idea here, based on some commentaries, is that um, the morning dew... You don't go out there and count how many dew drops there are. There's plenty, right? That's the idea. There are many dew drops in the morning. And in the same way, uh, the spiritual descendants of Jesus, those who believe in him, will be many. But the focus here is that amidst his enemies, his people would freely offer themselves to him. That can only be a work of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? That those, he goes to a place that is hostile to God and people just believe in him. That has to just be a work of the Holy Spirit. So under this covenant, God gives his people the Holy Spirit to save them, to make them willing and able to believe. If we truly understand just how sinful we were before Jesus Christ, just how turned away from God that we were, and hell-bound in our race, then we would understand we wouldn't have believed in Jesus Christ on our own. We needed God to change our hearts. And that's why he did it. That's why he changed our hearts and gave us faith, made us willing and able to believe. So, how do we apply all of this? First, I'll say this. Stop trying to earn your way to heaven. There is no existing covenant where you can even do that. There is no agreement that, that if you obey God perfectly that you can make your way to heaven, make your way to heaven. But even if you could, even if you obeyed God's law perfectly, then you would have simply just been doing your duty. But even beyond that, you can't do it. You can't obey God's law perfectly, and therefore you were under the curse of the law, but God has reached out to offer salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in him, that's it. Faith alone, in Christ alone, that's how you enter into this covenant with God and receive the benefits of it. And third and finally, you give God all the credit for this. Give him all the credit for it. We, we did believe in him. You should have no problem saying, singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Because if you're a Christian, you did, right? You, you should have no problem recognizing that you do obey God today. But you will look back and you will see that it was all God. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And you will give him the praise and the glory that he's due. So why not start today? Let me give him praise now. Father, thank you for condescending to creatures like us. You didn't need to speak to us at all. But beyond that, Almighty King, not only were we distant, but we were sinful. We sinned against you. We broke your law and we became deserving of your wrath. But from old, you promised to save sinners like us. And we're so thankful for that because now that you've revealed it in Christ, all of we who believe in him have been saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And we pray that we would daily rely on your Holy Spirit in us 
to walk in newness of life and faithfulness. Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son as he works in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. We're dismissed.